Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 11, Deuteronomy chapters 8 and 9. In the Jewish Publication Society Torah Commentary, the eminent scholar Jeffrey Tigay makes this outstanding observation regarding the opening words of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says this, Since his message, meaning Moses, since his message is that Israel should always remember its dependence on God, it is noteworthy that Moses begins with an appeal to observe the commandments. This reflects the biblical view that awareness of God and obedience are not separate phenomena. The commandments are the practical expression of awareness of God. And they serve to foster it. In Deuteronomy 8 and then 9, Moses continues with his sermon to the people of Israel, appealing, exhorting, fervently pleading with them to remember who they are, who God is, and that observance of His commandments is the proper expression of allegiance to Yehovah. Today, in addition to showing you some of the momentous theological principles contained within these chapters, I want to exhort you in a similar manner to love God by means of obedience to His commandments. You know, as that's outstanding of a job, as the Christian church has done over the centuries in spreading the good news of Jesus to every corner of this globe, this foundational God principle of obedience to the Lord's commands as the expected expression of love towards Him, the expression that He seeks from us, has curiously been set aside. It's been made less important than it ought to be. Often it has been labeled that obedience to his written commands is legalism. And therefore, it's a work. And legalism and works are to be avoided. Now, I realize that many who are hearing this teaching still have some reluctance to accept this foundational God principle of an active obedience to the, laws, to the Lord's laws and commands as the expected and demanded practical expression of our love for Him. Many believers still cling, consciously or maybe unconsciously, to the notion that accepting Yeshua as our Lord and Savior is the last work or the last act of obedience ever expected of us. While that indeed is true, for the attainment of salvation itself. It is not true when it comes to how we're to live our lives as saved people. Okay. Perhaps Deuteronomy 8 and 9 will give us some food for thought. I pray that it does. 
Because you know, people are watching how we act out our faith as never before. And because of the era in which we have arrived, Jews in particular are watching us. Albeit at times from a distance. They're watching how Gentile and Jewish believers in Yeshua actually operate. You know, my wife and I had a Torah-observant Jew as one of our guests for Thanksgiving one recent year. And because we developed a relationship with him, he felt free enough to talk a bit openly about his view of Christianity, and he even asked us a few questions about the New Testament. And in the end, he stated that his primary problem with the church and with the New Testament is that it was all about emotion. There was no substance. And I told him that while indeed what he has observed about some Christians may be accurate, that in the New Testament it no way contemplates or defines some new religion based on emotionalism. But of course for him, all he had to go by was how he observed people behaving who claimed to be living a New Testament life. And what he told me was that he sees the New Testament life as apparently representing, well, some kind of a complete disconnect of faith in God from any active desire to be obedient to Him. Now, while this is in no way universal, of course, I am forced to admit that it is a rather common attitude that I've encountered in the Western church. Now, if you think that's not true, then note this. 25 years ago, a published study showed what church officials instinctively knew. 80% of all giving to the church was accomplished by 20% of the people who attend. In the early 1980s, only two out of every ten people who went to a church wound up providing almost all of its support. Today, the Christian marketing and information gathering company Barna reports that number is rapidly shrinking to about one in ten who provide the bulk of the support for the church. Well, you might say, sure, but that's because some people have a lot more money than others, This is due to a wide disparity in income. Now, there's some truth to that, of course, but let me give you another fact that might temper that notion in you. A few years ago, I was the business business administrator of of a megachurch. So as part of my duties, I had to gather all the financial reports and try to make heads or tails out of what they were telling me. And one report in particular caught my attention. To my surprise... Only about 40% of the people who attended that church during a year's period of time gave anything at all. That's right. Out of every 10 people who regularly attended that church, six contributed exactly nothing. And as it turns out, that is actually becoming pretty typical 
according to the studies accomplished by Christianity today in cooperation with the Barna Group. As unwelcome as that news is, volunteerism also continues to diminish. The general number today, general, for those who volunteer their time in any way, is 5% of the church population. 120. What is it that Yeshua said? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are so few. Now, there is far more to a believer's demonstration of obedience to God's commands than merely giving money to your church or synagogue or devoting your time to ministry. But this is a quantifiable measurement that has been gathered over decades And it certainly is a valid and real reflection of just what our thoughts are about how seriously or not that we manifest our faith in God when it comes to being actively obedient or not to his laws and commands. Here in Deuteronomy, as Moses stared into the faces of all those Israelites who he had cared for, who he had led, who he had fought for, fought with, who he had mediated for with God, sacrificed everything for, for the past 40 years, it was a little different then than how it is today within Christianity. A few among his listeners would heed the message to love the Lord in the way that the Lord demanded, Obedience to his commands. Unfortunately, the vast bulk of the people would nod their head in silent agreement and then decide they had a better way. Their way to go about supposedly living this redeemed life. And you know what led to horrible consequences, including the loss of their precious land inheritance for hundreds of years at a time. Now, as disciples of Messiah... Our ultimate inheritance is the Lord. And we too are bound to do the commands of God or we too are bound to lose our inheritance. Our Lord and our Savior had this to say about that in Matthew 7, 7.21. He says, You know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but rather he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name didn't we cast out demons? In your name didn't we perform many miracles? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. By the way, what lawlessness... Was he speaking about breaking the Roman law? Breaking American civil law? Going 50 and a 35? Of course not. He's talking about the only law that concerned a Jew. He's talking about the law that is biblical, universal, and eternal. The laws of Yehovah. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8 together. 
Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that is page 206. All the mitzvot commands I'm giving you today, you are to take care to obey so that you will live. Increase your numbers. Enter and take possession of the land Adonai swore about to your ancestors. You're to remember everything of the way in which Adonai led you in these 40 years in the desert, humbling and testing you in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would obey his mitzvot or not. He humbled you, allowed you to become hungry, and then he fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, to make you understand that a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai. During these 40 years, the clothing you were wearing didn't grow old. Your feet didn't swell up. Think deeply about it. Adonai was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his child. So obey the commands of Adonai your God, living as he directs and fearing him. For Adonai your God is bringing you into a good land. A land with streams and springs and water welling up from the depths and valleys and on hillsides. And it's a land of wheat and barley, grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land where you will eat food in abundance. Lack nothing in it. A land where the stones contain iron. The hills can be mined for copper. So you will eat and be satisfied. And you will bless Adonai, your God, for the good land he's given you. But be careful not to forget Adonai, your God, by not obeying his commands, rulings, and regulations that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, after you've eaten and are satisfied, built fine houses and lived in them, increased your herds, flocks, silver, gold, everything else you own, you'll become proud-hearted. Forgetting Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt where you lived as slaves, who led you through the vast and fearsome desert with its poisonous snakes, scorpions, and waterless, thirsty ground. Who brought water out of flint rock for you. Who fed you in the desert with manna unknown to your ancestors. All the while humbling and testing you in order, uh, in order to do you good in the end. You will think to yourself, my own power and strength of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. No, you're to remember Adonai, your God, because it is he who is giving you the power to get wealth. To order, in order to confirm his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as is happening even today. If you forget Adonai, your God, Follow other gods and serve and worship them. I'm warning you in advance today that you will certainly perish. You will perish just like the nations that Adonai is causing to perish ahead of you because you will have not heeded the voice of Adonai your God. If it sounds like Moses is more or less repeating himself, that's because he is. He's saying similar things in different ways to try to make some very important points. And we're not going to linger at every point, but we're going to look at a few of them carefully tonight. Verse 1 makes a strong statement that there is a real and tangible reason 
for Israel to obey the instruction in Hebrew, Torah, that they're hearing. It's so that they will thrive in the land of Canaan that's about to become their possession. This is one of those statements that are said so often and so concisely, but it can blow right by us, as I'm sure it did many of those Hebrews. See, there's a quid pro quo at work here. If you do this, Israel, then I, the Lord, will do that for you. In other words, Israel's ability to stay rooted in the promised land as well as to thrive in that land, was entirely conditional on Israel's obedience to the Lord's commands. Now, note something. When the Bible speaks of obedience to God, more often than not, what it actually says is obedience to God's mitzvot commands... Obedience to God's commands or laws. When the Bible says obedience to God, it means obedience to his written commands. What else is there to be obedient to? You know, we've developed this doctrine over the centuries that everything we as believers are to obey is somehow directly transmitted from God to us as individuals in some supernatural way, or it's just not for us. That is, that God's written word is subservient to, or at variance with, some thought or instruction that the Lord might put into our mind by means of the Holy Spirit. Does the Lord put those mystical thoughts in our minds at times this way? Absolutely. Is that the regular, everyday means of our understanding God's purposes and his boundaries and his rules of conduct for our lives? Absolutely not. The main way we discover for ourselves the Lord's characteristics and justice system, which is spelled out in his laws and commands, is by means of his written word. In fact, when we do get a thought or something, uh, something that we're not quite sure, but we believe it's from God, we're to check it alongside his written word to see if it agrees. If it doesn't agree, if it's against his written laws and commands, then we're to discard that thought is either a a temptation from the evil one, maybe something derived from our own evil inclinations, maybe even just an overactive imagination. The written word is the standard by which all else must be compared. The written word of God is the believer's spiritual constitution. Listen to this well-known and often quoted New Testament passage from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. A couple things about that passage. Remember, the only scripture Paul was referring to was the Old Testament. There would be no other 
words of God written down and accepted as inspired biblical canon for around a century, probably a little more after his death. That is, when the word scripture is used in the Bible, including in the New Testament, it's referring only to the Old Testament because that's all that even existed. Paul, Peter, even the latest New Testament writer, John the Revelator, had no idea that about a hundred years after Paul's martyrdom that some of their letters would be seen by a portion of the church at least as additions to Holy Scripture. They had been floored. Also notice what Paul said is the source of teaching, reproof, correction, and learning, and what righteousness is. It is the written word of God, the scriptures, the Old Testament. Then we're told why we need this learning, and what's the reason? It's so that we are well equipped to do what? To do good works. Uh Uh-oh, there's that W word again. Paul says we're to learn the Lord's commands for the purpose of our doing good works. I guess Paul, by modern doctrine, is telling us to be legalistic. To put all our hope in works. Obviously, I'm saying that sarcastically. Because the Bible never, never makes good works out to be legalistic. Nor does it tell believers that we're to abandon obedience to God's commands or to works. You know, my dearest brothers and sisters, please consider this. It is the most common saying among we modern day believers to tell one another to follow your heart. That within our heart lays the truth. Remembering, by the way, that when the Bible says heart... In that era, the thought of the heart was as the organ where consciousness lay, where conscious thought, where intellect, it was where the mind resided. Therefore, we're cautioned this in the word of God. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart, meaning the mind, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Is our heart, our mind, no longer deceitful when we accept Yeshua as Savior? I wish it was so. Romans 7.15 For that which I am doing, I just do not understand. For I am not practicing what I'd like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. See, this is the dilemma, one of many, we all face as Christians. The evil inclination in our minds was not destroyed upon our salvation. We're going to continue to struggle with it. We're going to continue to give in to it at times, even occasionally believe it and obey it over God's word and his direction to us through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. You know, so many great and worthwhile evangelists and preachers and teachers have taken great falls because they listened to a supposed word from the Lord that ran completely counter to the written word of God, whether it was general wisdom or a direct commandment. They believed that somehow what was in their hearts 
was greater and more important than what was in the Lord's written commands. This is why we must always look into the word of God like a mirror, which is exactly what James tells us to do. That is, we must always be obedient to his commands and be just a little bit suspicious at all times about our own thoughts. Next, Moses tells the people to remember God's acts of deliverance and of a harsh harsh judgment against them in their 40-year wilderness journey. These lessons are going to be all important when they reach the promised land, they need to remember their dependence on God and His mercy in supplying all of their needs. They need to be very humble in remembering their rescue from Egypt by God when no other means was possible and how they were ushered from slavery into a land of abundance by God when all roads seemed blocked. So everything was of divine providence given by the great provider It wasn't a result of their own merit or their own human ability. It's always been recognized by the great Bible teachers that the recorded history of Israel's time in the wilderness was both real and literal as well as a prophetic shadow and illustration and completely analogous to the process of our moving from our personal slavery to sin into redemption in Christ. And then eventually on into the promised land of eternity with God. I agree with that premise, particularly in the pattern that it demonstrates. Note that part of what is being communicated by Moses is that the laws the people are learning are really more for use inside the promised land than outside of it. In fact, there are many laws and commands of the Lord's Torah that don't have application without their possessing that land and living in it. Laws of bringing in the first fruits of a harvest, making a pilgrimage, at least three of the biblical feasts, the laws of Jubilee, some of the laws of family inheritance. What I'm saying is that... The Hebrews weren't first redeemed, then given God's commands, and then they were to enter the promised land only to disregard all those laws that they were given out there in the wilderness. It's that same way for us. Once we've been given those laws and commands, we've been given that promised land, we don't now say, well, I'm going to follow my own heart from here forward. We have not been redeemed by Yeshua, spent time being shown God's commands and learning to obey them, only to stand on the brink of eternity and be told, by the way, once you get there, you know all those laws and commands I told you about? Forget it. We're to live and learn by those commands now during our earthly physical lives, because we're going to be living by those same laws and commands throughout eternity. Might they be somewhat different in expression and application in eternity as opposed to now? Probably to some degree. Because the way the law was practiced in times of old is even expressed a little bit differently today. 
In fact, part of Paul's mission was to explain some of the ways that ex, that the expression and the application of the law transformed at the advent of Yeshua. Great concern is placed on Israel that they should avoid becoming haughty and proud as they conquer Canaan. Okay. Starting in verse 11, Moses goes on at length repeating a warning about how, about how all that they experienced while they were out in the wilderness it was for a divine purpose. It was to teach them to trust God, to have fear and awe of Him all at the same time. The climax is verse 17, where it says, And you say to yourselves, My own power and the might of my own hand has won this wealth for me. To this rhetorical miscalculation, Moses counters that the wealth they will have is from the Lord. And it's because of a promise that he made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for no other reason that Israel has won such favor with him. But if Israel does forget and it does get proud, destruction is going to come in a similar form as it's about to happen to all those pagan nations and tribes of Canaanites who are going to be dispossessed from their homes and their land. I think that for a person to be a success in this world, but then turn around and give God the praise and the glory for that success, that whole attitude is only possible if God intervenes in your life and shows us the truth. Otherwise, it's perfectly natural to pat ourselves on the back. The act of being saved is not of itself sufficient to automatically make us grateful or full of humility, but it ought to be. You know, I've experienced this, and I know it firsthand. Even as a Christian, I was confident and utterly bloated with self-assurance in my corporate life. And I thought myself as invincible and absolutely deserving of all my success. Well, it took a pretty severe intervention by God to show me otherwise. That lesson was among the most valuable in my life, and I embrace it fully. But the pain of that time is also unforgettable. It really isn't our natural knee-jerk reaction to give God the credit for the good things in our life. It's our natural reaction to give ourselves credit. Let's move on to chapter 9. We're just going to read the first 17 verses of chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Listen, Israel. You are to cross the Yarden, the Jordan today, to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, great cities fortified up to the sky, a people great and tall, the Anakim, whom you know about, and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today 
that Adonai your God will himself cross ahead of you as a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He'll bring them down before you. Thus you will drive them out and cause them to perish quickly, as Adonai has said to you. Now, don't think to yourself, after your God has pushed them out ahead of you, it's a reward. It's to reward my righteousness that Adonai has brought me in to take possession of this land. No. It's because these nations have been so wicked that Adonai is driving them out ahead of you. It's not because of your righteousness or because your heart's so upright that you go in to take possession of their land, but it's to punish the wickedness of these nations that Adonai, your God, is driving them out ahead of you and also to confirm the word which Adonai spoke to your ancestors, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Therefore, understand, this isn't for your righteousness that now your God's giving you this good land to possess because you're a stiff-necked people. Remember, don't forget, how you made Adonai your God angry out in the desert. From the day you left the land of Egypt till you arrived at this place, you've been rebelling against Adonai. Also in Horev, you made God angry. God was angry enough with you to destroy you. I had gone up to the mountain to receive those stone tablets, the tablets on which was written the covenant that Adonai made with you. I stayed on that mountain 40 days and nights without eating food or drinking water. Then Adonai gave me the two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, and on them was written every word Adonai had said to you from the fire on the mountain the day of the assembly. Yes, after 40 days and nights, Adonai gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant, and then Adonai said to me, Get up, hurry down from here, because your people, whom you let out of Egypt, have become corrupt. So quickly have they turned aside from the way I ordered them to follow. They've made themselves a metal image. Moreover, Adonai said to me, I have seen this people and what a stiff-necked people they are. Let me alone so I can put an end to them and blot out their name from under heaven. I will make out of you a nation bigger and stronger than them. I came down from the mountain. The mountain was blazing fire and the two stone tablets of the covenant were in my two hands and I looked and there you had sinned against Adonai your God. You had made yourselves a metal calf and you had turned aside so quickly from the way Adonai had ordered you to follow. I seized the two tablets, threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Told you when we started Deuteronomy that it was primarily a sermon of Moses and as such he was going to repeat many of Jehovah's laws and commands but equally he would expound on their meaning and intent and how they were to be applied once they reached the promised land. Therefore the form of what I'm teaching you in our Deuteronomy study is also sermon-like. And it's really unavoidable. I've mentioned before that the New Testament is composed more or less 50% of being Old Testament quotes. Deuteronomy is by far the most quoted book by Jesus and the Apostles. By far. And I think that this is due to its sermon nature. 
and the focus on explaining the laws rather than simply listing them. It's the same reason that the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the single most studied part of the New Testament by Christians. Because it's exactly that. A sermon. A sermon that expounds on the law. Now it's interesting that the first word of chapter 9 is one that we looked at carefully just a few weeks ago. Shema. The first two words of Deuteronomy chapter 9 are Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. Now recall that Shema doesn't mean to just listen passively. It's a term that means to pay attention and to do what's about to come. I've often defined Shema as meaning hear and obey. It's a very forceful statement. It's actually a demand. The entire point of chapter 9 is this. The Lord God, Yehoveh, will be the victor in the holy war against the Canaanites. Israel is only God's agent. Israel is just his human proxy in this victory. The Lord says that Israel is going to battle and is going to dispossess nations who are stronger than they are and who are well entrenched. Nations that have had a lot of time to dig in and prepare their defenses against attack from Israel. Remember, Israel's destination was no secret to the people of the Middle East. Their route was a little bit up in the air. But Israel's stated destination, Canaan, was always known. So you can be sure that the great kings of these various Canaanite peoples had prepared in earnest for this coming invasion. Among those who will, who, who uh, Israel will take on are a people called the Anakites. And now these are a legendarily big, tall, and ferocious nation of warriors. Verse 2 says that it was a common saying among Middle Easterners of that time, who can stand up to the children of Anach? But Israel, says Moses, isn't to be concerned because the Lord God is a consuming fire and no one, not even those fearsome defendants of Anach, can stand up against him. We come now to what I think is the vital part of today's lesson, which is chapter 9, verse 4. Because the Lord says that when Israel has subdued the Canaanites, actually when God has subdued them, the Hebrews are not to think the Lord has enabled us to possess this land because of our virtues or our righteousness. That is, they're not to think that because they're an especially meritorious people, that's why God's enabled them to win. As the last part of verse 4 says, rather it's because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is dispossessing them. And then goes on to repeat what's now been said a number of times, and that 
was in order to fulfill the oath that the Lord made to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boy, if that doesn't put the Hebrews in their place before the Lord, wouldn't you say? God says, Israel has never held any special or inherent virtue that caused him to want to do all these wonderful things for them. Israel has not been born with, nor have their deeds earned them righteousness before the Lord. That in fact, they are inherently no better or worse than anybody else living on planet Earth. Rather, just as in later times when the Lord will use the Assyrians, later on still the Babylonians, later on still the Romans, as his instruments to wreak holy judgment upon his own people, Israel, on account of their rebellion, so is God about to use Israel as simply a tool to wreak his holy judgment upon the Canaanite tribes for their wickedness. In reality, only God possesses true righteousness. You know, probably one of the most difficult, contentious words in the entire Bible is the word righteousness. In Hebrew, tzedek, or in this form, tzedekah. Like the word shalom in the Old Testament or salvation in the New Testament, Righteousness isn't a word that can be explained in a dictionary fashion. Several of these biblical words and phrases carry a very deep, often inscrutable element to them. For the sake of time, let me offer just one particular aspect of this term that perhaps you might not have heard about. And it is that in addition to the more familiar aspects of righteousness, meaning good or standard or normal, it also indicates a judicial legal standing. You know, legal standing is everything in the Bible. Because God's righteousness is based on his system of justice and vice versa. So from a legal, judicial standpoint, God's righteousness means that he's always in the right. God's righteousness means he's always in the right. In a court of law, the basic understanding is that when two people contend against one another, like in a civil case, or it's the government perhaps going against an individual for breaking a law, one side is essentially judged as in the right because the other side is judged as in the wrong. A biblical principle is that a person who has been tried in a court of law and found innocent is seen as in the right or righteous. The holy war that the Lord was ordering upon Canaan was to establish what was right and to push out 
what was wrong. That is that Israel, who God says is being used as his earthly representative of what is right, is his proxy to overthrow all those who are wrong, the Canaanites and their wicked ways. Now this may bother some of you a little bit, particularly in a world of relative right and wrong, to call one entire people group right and to lump a whole other group of people into a category called wrong. But in a certain sense, that's exactly what's happening here. This particular use of the word righteous, meaning what is right, also extends to the concept that the promised land is currently inhabited with Canaanites who in God's plan don't belong there. Israel belongs there. So it's with no apologies that the Lord makes right what is currently wrong by ejecting the Canaanites and installing his people. That's the legal sense of it. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I'm going <laughs> to. To make a point that certainly applies to the situation in the Middle East today. What God was doing in the takeover of Canaan by Israel was not establishing Israel as a people who were somehow inherently in the right by dispossessing another people who were unlucky enough to be born as inherently in the wrong. Israel was not a right people and Canaanites a wrong people by their own nature or their own merit. Israel wasn't right in and of itself and therefore fully deserving of having that land that was currently in the hands of people who were born wrong of themselves. See, this was not even an issue of whether Israel was righteous or not. This was the Lord working out his own righteousness for his purposes. In essence, Israel was just the agent of God's divine righteousness to be used against a bunch of people who chose to behave wickedly, the people of Canaan. Israel was imputed with God's righteousness. They didn't have any of their own. That sound familiar? Let me take that another step. No human being is born inherently righteous. There is not a nation, a tribe, a family, anybody can be born into that is inherently in the right versus another person or family that was born inherently in the wrong. Accidents of birth are of no interest to the Lord. One doesn't win the heavenly lotto by being born a Jew or by being born an American, but lose by being born an Iraqi or an Arab. You see, Israel did not have inherent righteousness and neither do born-again Christians. As part of redeemed Israel, a Hebrew was simply elected as God's agent 
in the working out of his tzedek, his righteousness. It wasn't because that particular Hebrew had some kind of special righteousness that others didn't. As part of the body of disciples of Yeshua, you and I were simply mysteriously elected, for lack of a better word, as God's agents in the working out of His righteousness. Now here's the dilemma we'll close with tonight. Why Israel? Got a better one for you. Why me? Why you? Why didn't God choose the Egyptians? How about Osama bin Laden? Why did God choose Israel to be His redeemed people? Why did God choose you and me to be part of His redeemed according to faith in Yeshua and not some others? I don't know. The Bible uses the term election roughly. Oftentimes that's translated as called. On both counts. And all that that's a long subject all in itself. If election or called is the correct term in one or the other, something like that probably is. At the bottom of it, it indicates some kind of choice, some kind of selection by God as opposed to just cosmic chance. It's not by cosmic chance. It's not by Israel's self-appointment that Israel became God's people. That's why they're called God's chosen people. It's not by cosmic chance nor self-appointment that any human since about 30 AD who put their faith in Yeshua was redeemed. It was by God's choice. How does He make these choices? What's His criteria? We don't know. But here's what we do know. His selection has nothing to do with who we are, where we were born, whether we're male or female, whether our skin is dark or light or something in between, what our social status is. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with some type of, uh, of, of rightness or righteousness that we possess net naturally, kind of genetically, you know, inborn that others didn't get. Therefore, as Paul states, here is how we ought to look at the mystery of our election to salvation. He says this in Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not. That he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. He chooses weak people. He chooses people who aren't. He chooses despised people. He chooses people who aren't. He chooses wise people. He chooses people who aren't. Elections a mystery. It's an insolvable Rubik's Cube. There is no merit involved. Apparently, no prerequisite 
that we're aware of. And as a result, we ought to accept our salvation in the deepest humility, probably with a pretty good helping of fear. Paul had no idea why Israel was chosen other than for the sake of the patriarchs. And by the way, even that concept is pretty hazy to the rabbis. Or why Paul himself was chosen, or who would eventually be chosen. But chosen we are, and chosen we will remain. God chose Israel, and it remains chosen. And it will always be so. We can agree or disagree all we want with God's choices, but that doesn't change anything. Now, as for the Middle East today, just as it was for Moses, Joshua, and the Israelites 3,300 years ago, there is nothing inherently in the right about today's Jews and inherently in the wrong about today's Arabs. They're all just people. However, a long time ago, the Lord made a choice. Israel was chosen to be set apart as God's servants and Israel was to possess a special tract of land in the Middle East to fulfill God's purposes and nobody else is authorized to hold that land. Israel, as foolish and stiff-necked as they can be, remains a tool to punish the wicked nations who surround Israel. And at the same time, those nations are to be God's tool to bludgeon His own people Israel to repentance. Three times the Hebrews were exiled by wicked empires that the Lord authorized to be His agents to discipline His people. But that time's passed. And it's abundantly clear in the Scriptures that the last time that exile is going to be used as a punishment upon Israel happened about 2,000 years ago at the hands of the Romans. Instead, in our era, the Israels, Israelis will return to their own land, which they have, and there, in their own land, they will be attacked and bloodied and hated and murdered, not just by their immediate neighbors, but also in some way or another, by practically every nation on earth. But they won't be driven out. But they're going to be decimated. But before they are wiped out completely, Israel's Messiah is going to return. And the surviving remnant of Israel will be saved. And Messiah Yeshua will lead a war of complete annihilation against all those wicked nations of the earth. And this time God's elect will be God's agents to wreak havoc upon the wicked. Yeshua, our Messiah, is going to lead this holy war to end all wars at a place called Har-Mageddon. Therefore, there is one thing and one thing alone that Israel can stand upon as their claim to being God's especially chosen people into that land. It was God's sovereign decision. They never earned it, but they were never required to earn it. They certainly didn't deserve it any more now than any more than they did 3,000 years ago. They're not required to deserve it. All they're required to do is be obedient. 
no matter. God is in the right to make that divine choice that he wants Israel there. And that for the Arabs or anybody else for that matter, to occupy even one square foot of land designated for Israel is wrong. God is in the same process today as Moses was so long ago. As Moses was telling Israel that the Lord was about to fully replace the wrong people with the right people. We're going to stop here and return to our study of Deuteronomy chapter 9 next week.